Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Are you on a diet right now? If so, which one? The choices are many, but only a few have ever proven to be any good at helping people lose weight. This week, we're going to look at one of the most popular and supposedly effective diets out there, the ketogenic diet. We're going to hear about the good it does for some and how to do it if you choose to start. And in our SAS class, we'll find out just how long you need to stay on that diet and when it will be time for you to move on to something else. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to help you figure out how and why you might want to go keto to improve your health. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. According to some, there was no better time than the Roaring Twenties. The Great War was over, the Spanish flu had become a distant memory, and the world was filled with parties, prosperity, and promise. There were quite a few medical discoveries back then, including the Band-Aid. However, in this era of wonder and industry, there were also quite a few prophets promising medical miracles. In the United States, no one was more prolific than the personal health-promoting phenom himself, Bernard McFadden. He was a combination of Dr. Oz, Tony Little, and Tom Cruise, and his claim to fame was his hatred for the medical profession. He called it an organized fraud. Instead, he had all the answers to health. He assured people who followed his rules could live to 120 years of age. He claimed that he could alleviate and even cure almost any disease. And we're talking asthma, diabetes, impotence, diseases of the kidney, liver, and bladder, and even epilepsy. And the best part, it could all be done in a matter of weeks. So what was this miraculous treatment, you may ask? Well, it happened to be fasting. That's right, giving up food, saying no to excess, going hungry. You might be thinking I'm making this up, but the reality is, in some instances, fasting worked in helping patients with epilepsy. So much so that it led some scientists to try and figure out how this guy could possibly be right. And as it turns out, it wasn't all that complicated. Let me explain. When a person ingests little to no carbohydrates or sugars, such as when you fast, the body uses up more fat. There's no surprise there. The real magic comes in the process that led to the control of seizures. There was some chemical formed within that burned fat that was causing the impact. And upon further inspection, the researchers realized it was a group of chemicals known as ketones doing the trick. Essentially, when people fasted, they increased their levels of ketones and this in turn helped to calm seizures. Of course, fasting is not a sustainable proposition for most. After all, people need to eat. 
So this led other researchers to look for alternatives in the hopes of helping those epileptic children reduce the number of seizures. In 1921, a researcher at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, came up with a solution. His name was Russell Wilder, and his invention, or intervention, if you will, was a diet that promoted the burning of fat to increase the formation of ketones, scientifically known as ketogenesis. It was called the ketogenic diet. The rules were quite simple. All you had to do was follow this very easy protocol. One gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day, 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrates a day, and fat. Lots and lots of fat. Now, for anyone who has tried to stick to a diet, these guidelines are, in a word, awesome. It's why the same process is used today. But here's a question for those of you who are going keto or know someone who happens to be doing the ketogenic diet. Do you or that person have epilepsy? Probably not. Then why would you be on a diet that was developed to help reduce the effects of a specific disease? Especially considering that this was a treatment to be used alongside other interventions. This wasn't and still isn't a miracle cure. And in fact, some people should never try it, including those who are pregnant, breastfeeding, taking diabetes medications, have kidney issues, and so on. As for the rest of us, why would we be keen on ketosis? Well, the answer to that happens to be more about marketing than science. For decades, researchers knew there was a side effect when people went on this diet. They lost fat, and as a result, weight. Now, this benefit went unnoticed, but all that changed in the 1990s when health went from being a medical issue to one of social status. Whether it was the rake-like supermodels on the runway or the constant attention to personal weight in magazines, being thin became as important as life itself. And then there was the dawn of the infomercial. Are you having trouble losing weight? You've tried all the diets and nothing works. Are you feeling hopeless? Well, worry no more because we have the answer. Introducing the Keto Diet. It's the best way to achieve weight loss. All you have to do is eat less sugar and more fat. Your body will do the rest as it burns off those pounds. It's so simple. Best of all, you don't have to sacrifice your time and energy on all that exercise. But wait, there's more. The keto diet can also help you prevent diabetes, heart disease, acne, and even cancer. So give the keto diet a try and watch your health troubles melt away. What makes the ketogenic diet different from all those other as-seen-on-TV offerings is that since the rise in popularity, it's also proven to be effective at helping people lose weight in clinical trials. These trials all used good fats and not the ones that you would find in processed and fast foods. We're talking about names such as polyunsaturated fatty acids and medium-chain triglycerides, better known as MCTs. Now, when these types of fats are eaten in large quantities, there's plenty of evidence to show people lose weight. The lure of the ketogenic diet cannot be denied, and if you are thinking of losing weight, you might want to give it a try. But figuring out how to start may seem a little overwhelming, considering the amount of information out there on the internet. Thankfully, there is a better way. You can consult a certified dietitian. 
I have one such person on the line to help us learn more about how to go keto. Her name is Desiree Nielsen, and she is one of Canada's most well-known experts on nutrition. She's published books on the subject, hosted the television show The Urban Vegetarian, and has created her own nutrition empire based on using good foods for health. You've been researching diets for quite some time and have seen many come and go. Now, the keto diet started gaining popularity some 25 years ago, and it's still going strong. What, in your opinion, gives it that lasting power? Well, you know, I think the thing about the keto diet, with many of these diets that have had this kind of staying power, is that when it's the right fit for someone and when it's done well, it works, you know, and it's still being debated in the literature, but like keeping carbohydrates down and insulin levels low appears to be effective for weight loss and particularly for people with diabetes to normalize their blood sugar. So, I mean, let's not forget carbohydrate restriction is how we treated diabetes before the discovery of insulin. So like there's something there physiologically and biologically that I think really speaks to, I don't know, doing the opposite of how what we normally do in North America when it comes to our diet. Let's just get into the heart of the keto diet, which is the fats. You know, we, we've learned a lot about fats over the years, and, and I guess you could say they're not all alike. But when it comes to the keto diet, you know, there are some definitely critical ones that you want to have in there, and then there are ones you want to avoid. For sure. It's a really interesting question, and I feel like it's one that not everyone is is 100% in agreement on, um, you know, because if you believe some keto evangelists on the internet, you know, eating plenty of cheese and butter and steak is the new definition of healthy. And, you know, there's a little bit of research to support where they're going, because if you look at some of the literature, it seems that like when you're in that ketogenic metabolism, so not if you're just low carb, but you got like, you've got to be in that keto zone. The body preferentially burns saturated fats. So it seems like a large increase in saturated fat might not actually produce a large increase in LDL cholesterol, which is what people are worried about for your heart. But I think the thing, you know, no matter what you're doing, it's really important for me as an RD, the basis of any like healthy fat intake has to be the monounsaturated fat. So it's like avocados, nuts, seeds, olive oil. I really counsel people to do a very dietitian-y keto so that those are the mainstays of their diet so that we know they're going to be in really good health long term. I've been to your website and I actually have seen on the banner, on the top, none of the above. In fact, it's coconuts. (laughs) So... (laughs) I have to tell you, I mean, I love coconuts. It's part of my diet. And, and honestly, they're all the rage, especially when it comes to keto because of those, you know, MCTs. Now, I've heard good things about coconut fat and I've heard some really bad things about coconut fat because now I can't have any butter on my popcorn when I'm going to the movies. The question is, how healthy are coconuts and what form should we be looking for, you know, in, in the grocery store? Yeah, I totally think you should have butter. If you're going to have movie popcorn, you should really just put the butter on it. <laughs> I think oh, I love you. There, but <laughs> but I, so I, I totally believe that coconut products fit into a healthy diet. I mean, think about how many populations around the world use coconuts as a mainstay in their cuisine. But, and there's always a but. Coconut is not a health food the way that olive oil is. You know, we get really excited about medium chain triglycerides, that MCT oil. But coconut is not 100% MCT. It's like 
maybe 60, 65%. And so there is some saturated fat in it that may raise your cholesterol level. Is that a big deal for you? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on the other things that you eat. So for me, like my mainstay is always olive. And then, yeah, I use coconut oil. Do I use it heavily every day? No, but it's definitely something that's in my rotation. And I love coconut milk curries, all those kind of things. Totally fits. Uh, do you mind then if I ask you, um, what's the difference in the olive oils? Because uh, when you go into the grocery store, you see all sorts of different types. And I know that, you know, if you're going for the extra virgin stuff from Italy, you're going to be paying through your pocket. The, the question is, you know, is that what we really need to have or can we sort of go with something else? Uh, you know, what, what, what's the difference in the olive oils? Yeah, so I'm definitely an extra virgin olive oil, you know, fan. It's what I recommend. And I think when you look in grocery stores now, and I know there's like all of this kerfuffle about like fraud in olive oil, but if you're buying like a good national brand extra virgin olive oil, usually on sale, it's actually not as expensive as you might think. And you can cook with it. And that's the thing that people are like, oh, you can't cook with extra virgin oil. I'm Portuguese, like we cook everything in extra virgin olive oil. Um, the key is not to fry with it. So as long as you're taking it up to like seven on the stove, that's fine. Those virgin and like light olive oils come from subsequent pressings of the olives. And so like all the good stuff, particularly all those anti-inflammatory phytochemicals, they're gone in the first batch. So you're not really getting all of the goodness of olive oil if you're not using extra virgin. That's fascinating. Now, you had a show called The Urban Vegetarian. And so I imagine that you promote vegetarian diets. Totally. I've been vegetarian for like more than two decades. Okay. So if that is the case, um, we've heard previously in one of the earlier shows that even as high up as the Vatican, there's this push to give people um, more incentive to, to have a vegetarian diet. And, and in a way, I kind of agree with that. Um, but let's just talk about it from a ketogenic perspective. You know, does being vegetarian really help? Um, you know, it definitely doesn't help on a ketogenic diet. If you're over lacto vegetarian, so if you do eggs, if you do dairy, keto is actually fairly easy. The only thing you're really saying goodbye to is the legumes. However, if you are completely plant-based, if you don't do eggs and you don't do dairy, not having legumes in your diet is really a hindrance. So some people will do a plant-based keto, but it is very difficult to get your protein and you really find yourself eating the same foods over and over. Whereas if you're a vegetarian, you've got omelets, you've got, you know, cheese, you've got a lot more variety in your diet and it's actually pretty easy to do. The whole idea of vegetarianism, when I was first hearing about it, is that it's boring. You're just eating the same things over and over. And we've changed that. And, and that's great. But this past year, something amazing happened. And, and I'm, I, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, there was a complete sellout of a particular type of burger at A&W restaurants here in Canada. It was called the Beyond Meat Burger. And it's totally made of plants. Not a single drop of meat in it. And, and, and it took them months before they were able to get it back into production and back in the restaurants. So from my perspective, it shows that Canadians may be able to accept a more vegetarian diet simply because we're having more options. And so if someone is interested in sort of going keto, do you think that, you know, looking at going vego keto, if you will, is still something that's going to help them? Or do you think that they really should start with the keto first and then worry about the vegetarian later? 
Well, I think for a lot of us as vegetarians, the vegetarian is kind of the non-negotiable. So then, like, <laughs> I can really see that. interested, you know, you're like, yeah, you're like, oh, I'll just try eating meat for a while. Most of us would be like, no, we could never do that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so, you know, I think if you're interested in keto, it is another layer that you can kind of add on there. Um, and, you know, the surprising thing, it is, it's restrictive. It is more restrictive if than how most of us normally eat, you know, like, say goodbye to apples, you know, say goodbye to eating a French fry ever again, which means, you know, if you're going to A&W, you got to like lettuce wrap that Beyond Meat burger and like kick off the ketchup and like have nothing (laughs) else. You can still treat yourself though. I mean, a lot of people doing a ketogenic diet, once they're really in that zone, um, there are a lot of ways to make really delicious, indulgent feeling food. You know, you can have a half a glass of wine every now and then and still stay in the keto zone. So, you know, particularly for my clients, I tend to discourage people a lot before they finally say, no, I'm committed. I want to do keto. But once they're in, people live this way for years. You know, it's definitely not something that I recommend as a quick fix. As a registered dietitian, as an RD, from your professional opinion, do you think the keto diet really is something that people should take up as a lifestyle? Or really, is it something that we should look at as a treatment um, and, and then maybe move on to something else after? Um, you know, I think the answer is both. Um, but like I said, I think for me, ketogenic diets are like a nutritional therapy option only when less restrictive regimes aren't working. So if your diabetes is out of control and the, the usual guidelines of, well, eat low glycemic carbohydrates and, you know, because we still tell people to get enough carbohydrates with diabetes, which to me is a little bit mind boggling. So, but if those standard lines aren't working and you're just taking more and more medications, then I do recommend if people think they can live this way, because I think that's the thing with nutrition. It might be the best possible dietary therapy, but if you don't think you can hack it, then it's not the right one for you because whatever you do to get your blood sugars down or to get your weight down, if that's a goal for you, is probably the thing you're going to have to do forever. So, It starts as a therapy and becomes a lifestyle. And I typically recommend that unless people think they can commit for at least six months, that I recommend something else entirely. Oh, amazing. Uh, I do want to point out one thing, though. And you're not saying that people should follow the Al Roker effect, which is, you know, find the clinical trial that fits you and then run with it. You really say that people should be consulting with professionals such as yourself before they you know, choose whatever direction they're going to go. Yes. And this is one of the things that I hate about the internet fad of keto is people think, oh, I'll just do it for two or three weeks. No, it takes two or three weeks, even for your metabolism to fully adjust. And as beneficial as it can be, it can also be extremely dangerous. You can have electrolyte imbalances, which are very real. It's not just me being like a naysayer. I've had clients who have had this issue when they've gone on their own. So you have to work with a dietitian. If you are on medications, you need a pharmacist who knows how to adjust your medications because in the first couple weeks, your blood sugar or your blood pressure medications could get you into a dangerous zone if you're not proactively adjusting them. So you need your team behind you to do this properly and healthfully and safely. So go, go keto. Just make sure you've got someone there to go with. Go go with an RD friend. The ketogenic diet has proven to help quite a number of different health problems, and most of these benefits come from the simple process of losing fat. 
By keeping a healthier weight, you can reduce the risk for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and, and maybe even cancer. There's another benefit that is being given quite a bit of attention in the research community, although you may not have heard about it. It seems going keto may also be affecting our brain. And while there isn't much information out there, more studies are showing evidence to suggest one aspect of our lives may be helped by going keto. Our mood. Our emotions are controlled chemically in our brains by a number of molecules known as neurotransmitters. You've probably heard of serotonin as the most popular. Others include glutamate, gamma-aminobutyric acid, dopamine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, vasopressin, and cortisol. Now, one of the most studied chemicals in the context of our emotional health is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, simply called BDNF. When we are in a sour mood, the levels of this chemical are low. Raise them, and we feel better. Obviously, this is oversimplified, but it does seem the amount of BDNF in our brains can help to determine what mood we are going to experience. This may not be all that relevant for most of us, but for those living with depression or at risk of it, figuring out how to raise BDNF is of utmost importance. Pharmacologically speaking, the answer is obvious. Antidepressants. They tend to help increase the amount of BDNF and as such can improve the overall situation. But what about a natural means? The options may appear to be endless. Natural health promoters suggest a number of different supplements that may work. Ginseng, caffeine, curcumin, and even a plant called velvet bean. However, there may be a better option. And for my next guest, that option would be to follow a keto diet. His name is Dr. Roger McIntyre, and he's professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto, and he's the head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network. He's been looking into the benefits of going keto, and last year published a paper on how this diet may be useful as a way to keep our mood in balance. The keto diet started off as a treatment for epilepsy, so I can see why research would look at the possible effects of going keto on the brain. But what prompted you to think about using keto for our emotional health? What prompted me, frankly, is really what I would refer to as a state of the union. In other words, if we were to look at brain health and more specifically, let's say depression as a candidate and very common mental disorder across humanity throughout the world, uh, we have treatments for many people that work extremely well, uh, assist in full recovery of their illness, and really help them get back to their lives as they uh, want it to be. Unfortunately for too many people, that outcome, which of course I believe is the outcome we all strive for, is in fact not being achieved. So we need to think about different ways to treat and yes, prevent uh, depression and other types of brain-based disorders in the first place. So that was really the overarching inspiration. And then what really took us in the direction of keto or potentially ketogenic diets is really, in fact, a compelling body of science, which indicates beyond any doubt that at least in the models that are being looked at in the scientific community, ketogenic diets have the potential to exert a very positive influence on the brain generally, 
the cellular systems that really, uh, you know, comprise the brain. And also within the cells, what we call organelles, that is the, uh, uh, the constituents within inside the cell that we now implicate as being the problem in causing many brain-based disorders like depression. It seems the ketogenic diet seems to target those areas and influences it very positively. So that observation, which is itself is really interesting, provides the basis for hypothesizing that in someone who does have depression or maybe another condition, you mentioned epilepsy, Perhaps, in fact, there could be beneficial effects on their mood, their well-being, their general quality of life by really, in fact, adhering to a keto or ketogenic diet. And uh, this has, in fact, been something that has been now talked about in the field and has really gained a lot of traction. Yeah, I was reading your paper from last year, and, and to be honest, I was fascinated that the ketogenic diet appeared to have an effect on the level of various neurotransmitters, which are, of course, are very important when it comes to our, our brains and our functions and our moods. Um, I, I spoke a little bit about BDNF, but I, I'm wondering, can you um, help us uh, to understand a little bit more about what the molecule does in the brain and, and how ketogenic diets may help to stabilize or even, as you say in the paper, raise our, those BDNF levels. Yeah, it's really important to really um, understand part of this, this framework because I think it provides a scientific basis for why we're doing this. First of all, it's important for uh, folks who are listening in to be familiar with the prevailing model, that is the prevailing viewpoint, that the scientific communicate, uh, community believes is really what's gone wrong in the brain and depression. And this is the case for some other conditions as well. But again, I'm focusing on depression. And we now believe what is occurring in the brain is not so much primarily that there's a chemical imbalance in the brain, but instead there's something wrong with what's called brain plasticity. In other words, this is the brain's ability to grow. So brain cells, neurons, gray matter, and also white matter in the brain, they have to grow they have to differentiate. In addition to differentiating, they also need to be functional and connect to each other. And they also need to stay alive to be able to perform their duties. This is, in fact, referred to as neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, and also neuroadaptation and protection. It turns out that the molecule that you just mentioned, BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, is one of many, many trophic factors that really have a very... Uh, impressive job description in the brain, but their overarching job deliverable is to assist in the differentiation, the plasticity, and the protective uh, effects on the brain. So this sounds like a fairly important duty, and a set of duties, and indeed it is. It turns out that ketogenic diets um, have what we call in the business, the words pleiotropic, which really means it has many effects. And one of those effects is it seems to increase the synthesis and release as well as the activity of BDNF in the human brain. And that is aligned with the prevailing disease model vis-a-vis -vis if there's something altered or abnormal about brain plasticity, growth, and development, if we can, in fact, assist in the production, the release, and the activity of some of these trophic factors, that could be beneficial. What's interesting is that many of the conventional antidepressants that we have uh, drugs from the Prozac era, as an example. But other treatments as well, like exercise therapy, which is also an effective antidepressant. Um, these interventions have complex actions in the brain, but one of the actions is, is they increase BDNF. So along with being a candidate molecule, 
that we're trying to target with ketogenic diets, it's also a shared target with other modalities of therapy. And in the scientific community, that just adds further uh, weight to the belief that this is, in fact, a viable treatment avenue for people who have a declared illness. Do you see the ketogenic diet sort of fitting into a treatment regimen? Or, or do you think that people should kind of be thinking that, well, if I go on a ketogenic diet on my own, then I'm just going to feel better? It really is an important question. And I would say that for today, what we can say is that ketogenic diets are not prime time, but they're promissory. What I mean by that is I would not recommend a ketogenic diet as a proven standard uh, conventional treatment for depression. The evidence is giving us reasons to believe that it could be capable of lifting moods, giving them more joie de vivre and more, more sort of vitality to their life, <laughs> and a general sense of functional capacity. Before we, in fact, make broad recommendations that people should do this as a standard you know, conventional approach, I think we're, we're obliged in the scientific community to prove that this is the case. It remains a testable hypothesis rather than a proven fact at this point in time. And then within the, the granularity of that, we're also going to need to figure out what's the dose? You know, what, what do you have to do? How often do you do it? Is it for a day, a week, a month? Is it lifetime? And, and, and again, I think one, I, I won't get too derailed by some of the specifics around this, but ketogenic diets for many people can be very, very difficult to adhere to. We like our carbs. We, as humans, love carbs. I love carbs. And we all love carbs, or most of us do. <laughs> and what, what we've noticed in people who've, who've, in fact, participated in research studies with ketogenic diets is they do complain of a, almost a craving for those carbs. They get actually quite agitated, quite uh, frankly, a bit moody, uh, quite frankly, looking for those carbs. And um, it's, really, it's really difficult for a lot of people to do this. And then to add more complexity to the adherence, the way our food is today, it's very difficult if you go to your local shopping center to identify good quality foods that are void of carbohydrates. Some of these things are hidden into the ingredients and so on. So we've got a lot of detail to sort out. But certainly what we know from pediatric epilepsy, the ketogenic diet has been very effective at reducing frequency, severity, and the malignancy of those seizure disorders. And uh, we have at least some information that, that could guide us around the dose of the ketogenic diet. But I do think we need to prove this rather than just make a recommendation based on a testable hypothesis. Diet can not only be considered, of, considered as a treatment, but maybe as a prevention strategy for people who are looking to live a healthy physical life and emotional and brain life, which they should be. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to put a little perspective on that ketogenic diet. We know it can be helpful as a treatment for epilepsy, maybe for mood disorders as well. But the real reason most people start, especially now in January, is weight loss. Clinical evidence and thousands of people agree that there is a reduction of fat and you will weigh less. But there is one question that no one has really addressed, despite all the content you may find out there. How long does the weight loss last? Thankfully, our guest teacher knows the answer. She's Adrienne Lindblad, and she is the Knowledge Translation and Evidence Coordinator for the Alberta College of Family Physicians and an Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Alberta. 
last month, she and her colleagues published a paper that answers this all too critical question. So Adrian, let's not beat around the bush. How long does the keto diet help us to lose weight? Well, the effects of the weight loss peak probably at about five months. Uh, unfortunately, like so many other diets, weight is slowly regained so that after about one year, there's really no difference between the ketogenic diet and other diets like the low-fat diet, where your weight loss might be only about 10 pounds or so. In comparison to, say, other diets, um, how much more are you losing? So compared to the low-fat diet, it's probably about 0.7 kilograms, which is <clears throat> not even quite two pounds, is probably what the difference is after about one year. Wow. And for some people, you're right, for some people, an overall loss of 10 pounds or so is, is fantastic. Most of these studies that we looked at were actually in people who were quite obese with a BMI or a body mass index of anywhere from 30 to 43. So people who weighed quite a bit where 10 pounds might not make quite such a difference to them. Now, let's get into exactly how you came to that conclusion. Um, you performed a, a systematic review, right? So what we did is we looked at systematic reviews that had already been published, and we were as systematic in that as we could be. So basically what that means is we looked at the highest, best quality available medical evidence. So we looked at the types of studies that can actually answer cause and effect of an intervention. So there's a lot of different ways that you can create a study, but a lot of those are only finding associations and showing that some things just are kind of related. These types of studies actually looked at cause and effect. And systematic reviews then takes these types of studies and really try to compile them all together. And it's, it's a much stronger way of looking at the research, much more reliable than just looking at a single study in isolation. The other thing that we did to come up with this answer is we really wanted to look at the outcomes that matter to people. So there's a lot of studies that will look at things like how many calories were burned on this diet, for an example. And that's an interesting outcome. But at the end of the day, what people want to know is how much weight is lost. So we only looked at studies that answered that question. One of the things that we also talk about are adverse events, side effects, if you will. Mm -hmm. Were there any, and if so, sort of what are they for people who are thinking about going on a ketogenic diet, but, you know, want to have all the facts? Absolutely. And that's interesting about the ketogenic diet. It's probably one of the only diets that has side effects with it. And they're quite high. So about 30% of people or a third of people who try the ketogenic diet will get constipated. Um, they'll have, suffer from bad breath and they might even get muscle cramps. A lot of other people will also complain of headaches, diarrhea, weakness, and even a rash. So it's not really as well tolerated as your, your regular diets. That does not sound fun at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're really putting cold water on this whole idea of the ketogenic diet. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I, I completely understand. Could this be something that you're just seeing because 30% of the population have a certain genetic disposition? I mean, we always hear in the media that people react differently to diets because of their genes. And if you have the right genes, then a certain diet's going to be perfect for you. Based on what we've seen about the keto diet over the years of research and, and your work, it, it sounds like genetics might be a bit of a stretch. Has your research found anything regarding genes and weight loss, either with, you know, the ketogenic diet or any other diet that you've sort of studied in the past? Absolutely. So there was, there was a fascinating study just published last year, and it was one of these high-quality studies that really looks at cause and effect, a randomized controlled trial. Um, and it actually looked at this exact question. So what they did is they randomized about 600 people 
to either go on a low-fat diet or a low-carbohydrate diet, and in this case it was a ketogenic-type diet, for one year. And after that year was over, they looked at their genetic makeup for signals like being more sensitive to carbohydrates, um, because if you're more sensitive to carbs, then maybe you're more prone to gain weight from carbohydrates. And therefore, if you were in the low-carb group, maybe you would lose more weight if you had cut these carbs out of your diet. But what they found was that your genetic makeup had absolutely no effect on whether you lost weight or not. Uh, in fact, this study actually did a great job in highlighting the range of the weight that can change for people when they're on a diet. And in this case, the weight change in this study ranged from a loss of 30 kilograms, which is about 66 pounds, to a gain of 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. And it didn't matter what group you were in, if it was the ketogenic diet or the low-fat diet, this was the weight range that we saw with this. And it really highlighted that it's really probably not your genetic makeup that matters when you're looking at a diet and whether or not it will be successful for you. What really matters is probably finding a diet that you can stick to because every diet's going to be different and long-term being able to stick to a diet is what matters probably more than anything. You are a knowledge translation and evidence coordinator, correct? Yes. And when we talk about people who translate knowledge, usually we have, you know, hands-on, intricate, detailed knowledge of what we're talking about, correct? Yep. Have, <laughs> have, have you ever done the ketogenic diet or do you know anyone who has and how did it go? Oh, I, I, I certainly have not. I, am, I would call myself a carbivore. Um, I, I believe the most important <laughs> part of any diet is whether you can stick with it, and I would fail after about 30 minutes on the ketogenic diet. There's no way I could stick to it. But I do have a number of colleagues and friends who have tried it. Uh, in fact, it was a student of mine named Rhonda Ting who suggested we look into the evidence for the ketogenic diet because we know so many people interested in it and so many people who have tried it and so many mixed messages about ones that worked and ones that didn't work. And really, it was just fascinating because here's a diet that has such a fascinating, interesting theory and mechanism about why it should work and how wonderfully it can work. But unfortunately, theories and mechanisms don't always lead to outcomes that we want. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has given you a burning desire to think about how to lose weight the right way. We want to thank everyone out there who's been listening. Your support has been overwhelming, and thanks to you, we've been nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award in the Science and Medicine Series category. We'll put the link in the show notes, and if you can, please vote for us. If you have any questions or want to make a comment on the show, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at JATetro. For ideas longer than 280 characters, including ideas for the show, you can email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to get more people to find the podcast. Have a great week. Enjoy those good fats. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.